Welcome to another episode of the Green Minds podcast. My name is Desi, and I'm honored to have with me today Mai Bu, Shiladitya Ghosh, and Nicholas Chadwick to discuss the latest research around director capture. Specifically, we talk about the different technologies underpinning director capture, what the application cases and limitations are of each methodology, the biggest hurdles in building and scaling a startup operating in the director capture sphere, and lastly, advice for entrepreneurs, scientists, and everyday people to support the development of the nascent carbon dioxide removal market. Let's dive in. Could you just firstly describe your paths to date and how your interest and your passion for the carbon dioxide removal sphere came about? Nick, why don't you go first? So I really got into carbon removal because I had this kind of moment in time in, in roughly February 2020 where I spent many works, many years working in basically water security issues. So taking things that I built in the lab, sensors, all this kind of thing out into the field. And I'd always been very motivated about climate change. And I organized this big conference essentially in Mexico where the idea was to bring all these like stakeholders together, governors, senators, things like this, to get people around to discuss like water security issues, which from my perspective at the time felt like one of the big things in climate and the climate change debate that kind of got left behind, right? And I had this situation where I'd spent loads of time organizing the conference and, you know, got everyone together and a lot of effort and, and work to get that done. And then there was this moment, and I vividly remember sitting in the audience of the conference that I organized myself and the governors and senators walk in, they say something for 20 minutes and then they leave and you go, nothing's ever going to get solved if this is the kind of like discourse that's happening around this problem at this moment in time. And so had this realization that I was doing very low leverage work in the fight against climate change, but obviously something's quite important is, you know, water is the most consumed resource on the planet. Let's see how everyone does without sort of seven days of water. You know, it's, it's integral to our existence, but I just thought actually I could probably be exerting higher leverage and having higher impact working in something else in climate change. And at the same time, as part of my role, I was managing carbon capture project actually at Imperial with the chemistry department. And just remember having this conversation with the principal investigator there and just kind of blew my mind a little bit. And the one thing that they said was, it's probably not the case that we don't know what to do with CO2 when we get it. Weirdly, despite it being around in the atmosphere or around us and slowly kind of baking us to death, is that we don't have enough of the stuff. Like we need carbon capture technologies to be better. It kind of like sparks in my mind. And I think these conversations within sort of like a couple of weeks of each other. And that kind of put me on a journey to basically discovering Deep Science Ventures, a venture builder in London. I connected with our CTO, Gaga Bashaw there, and basically he was working on a DAC concept. And I spoke to him for about an hour and a half, but I think within the first 10 minutes, I was basically convinced that if, he, if he'd have me, I'd, I'd leave my job immediately and come and work on what he was doing. And fortunately he did. And that's where I met Shill. We built Mission Zero from there. So Shill, that's probably a good, a good segment to hand over to you, right? Yeah. Sure. Thanks, Nick. And... I, I think some of my story diverges quite significantly from your experience, but it comes together quite nicely towards the end. So I grew up in Singapore, which is an island country near the equator. And throughout living there, like I became acutely aware of the impacts of climate change and global warming, especially for an island country. And so like those experiences, plus having a family in India, which is regular droughts and all of these things, really motivated me to pursue my career and further studies in an area that's relevant to helping tackle climate change in some capacity. Where there is nuclear energy, where there is carbon capture, renewables, other things like that, I was, was still an open question for me. But when I came to Imperial in 2012 from my undergraduate studies, 
and I saw the four and a half million pound carbon capture pilot plot that we have in the chemical engineering department, which I'm sure Maya is familiar with as well. It became like a point point that was decided for me that this is the thing I want to work on. And so during my studies, I started doing a research placement with Professor Paul Fennell, who's in the Clean Fossil Fuels Research Group at Imperial's ChemEng department. And I did my PhD with him as well. And that really gave me a lot of exposure to the point source carbon capture industry. And I realized through that experience as well that carbon capture is such a big field and there's so many different types of approaches for it. But some of the main ones that we need for our future, which is to do a direct air capture, don't have as many people working in that space and ideas that are yet mature as quickly as we need them to get. And so I was motivated to explore opportunities to work more broadly in direct air capture specifically. In 20 lockdown, I thought this is the perfect option. Journey looking at people working in carbon. There were still so many other people, even in my department, whose paths I didn't really cross, but we're still working in the space. For example, Maya, whose work I am familiar with and our supervisors are also close colleagues, but we never necessarily did day-to-day in university. So it'd be great to hear more about Maya's journey as well. Great. Thanks, Shil. And thanks, Nicholas. Yeah. So my journey actually started back in Australia. So I did, I just kind of nearly finished my chemical engineering degree and I was looking for places to work experience. And I went to a place called CSIRO, which is essentially the research agency in Australia. So I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but it stands for the Commonwealth Science, Scientific and Industrial Research Organization, CSIRO. And essentially they do a lot of sort of like cutting edge, closer commercialization type of technologies. And I was sat in the team that did carbon capture and storage. And so they actually took me out to a real CO2 capture plant that was capturing CO2 from a brown coal fired power plant. And that kind of really was that moment of like, wow, these are things that actually can capture CO2. It's not sort of like a mythical technology that's, you know, not yet developed. It's something that we have tangible, ready to go. And so I got to do work experience there and they convinced me to do a PhD essentially after that. And then through the PhD, I got to meet lots of people globally by doing, you know, going to conferences and I did the IEA GHG conference, which took me to the UK. And I was based in Nottingham University for a bit and met people from the UK. And then that led me to want to apply for a research position as a postdoc in Imperial College. And that's why I'm here in the UK. And that's where I got introduced to other applications of CO2 capture. So not just for power, but looking at bioenergy with carbon capture and storage, which is where the CO2 removal piece comes in. And I was just really lucky to be put in a group that really looks at things from a systems level. So we look at BECS, we look at direct air capture and how these sort of CO2 removal technologies fit in this whole energy transition context. Because if you want to reach net zero, we can do CCS, we can do that in power, we can do that in industry, but then there's always that residual mission and how does it all fit together? How much of the technologies you need to deploy considering the constraints on resources and those constraints on land. And so that's kind of, yeah, over a whole about, you know, 12 years of, you know, work in this space. Um, I've seen a lot of progression because back when I first started my PhD, when I first heard about direct air capture, and I remember at that conference, everyone was kind of laughing at the idea of like, why would you capture CO2 from air? It's so dilute. It doesn't make sense. But then now, you know, you see companies actually doing it and selling and, you know, the credits and there's the demand for the technology. So a lot has changed over just, you know, this 13 year period. So it's really quite interesting to see that change. 
really interesting paths and stories and how your interest in carbon dioxide removal came about. I'd like to take a step back and talk about the differences between direct air capture, um, carbon dioxide removal in general, and point source capture. There's a lot of misunderstanding in this market right now and would love to hear your perspectives on why this is the case. Yeah, I think the sort of, it's not so much a misconception, but like the concern with this whole offsetting space where people worry that, you know, just particularly around CO2 removals where they say, well, we're, we're counting too much on CO2 removals as this sort of magic bullet and we're not doing enough for the mitigation or reducing of our, our emissions. And that's why there's that sort of like controversy around the whole CO2 removal space. DAC in particular as this like it's got this sort of branding of being something that's expensive, uses a lot of energy, and then that is a big challenge to kind of overcome. But the thing is, it is still a very valuable technology because if you kind of do that systems modeling, every technology is needed to some extent because of the constraints around land. You can't grow enough biomass to meet the requirements for CO2 removals through just delivering it through BEX or biochar. There's just not enough afforestation. And so therefore, DAC is still a very much essential technology to help deliver. You always need a portfolio approach. And when you're thinking about systems perspectives, the cost is always overall cheaper when you have a diversity when you have diversity in your portfolio. So I think, yeah, it's never going to be just one technology, but it's going to be multiple technologies. And DAC is just one of those that is, is going to be needed. Obviously, completely, you know, I'm completely aligned with that. And I think there's I think there's like another thing is that there's maybe a lack of understanding between like point source carbon capture as you might envisage it traditionally as like CCUS and these kind of clusters that are spreading up around sort of the UK and traditionally what DAC was intended to be, which is purely atmospheric capture. And I think there's a, a conflation of terms around like carbon capture versus carbon removal and what these mean, because fundamentally these processes are kind of like, you know, there's a value chain, like DAC sits within it, but you need a sequestration partner or if you're going to do utilization it's something else. And and so there's also like, there's a variety of terms flying around in the space at the moment, which kind of, I, I worry are starting to cause like confusion amongst some sectors as well. I think as well, the only thing I'd add there is that, you know, I think most, it's certainly been my, what's the word, experience essentially that in the direct air capture space is that most of the people running direct air capture companies are diehard environmentalists. You know, they, they sort of reticently wish we actually didn't have to do direct air capture but that is fundamentally the space that we are in at this moment in time and aligning with what Myers just said you know you know at 2050 you know estimates whether it's the IPCC or the IA reports or, or whatever report you choose to go with there needs to be something like 51 gigatons of, uh, of removal that needs to happen at that at that point in time and I think something like 10 of this is earmarked via, via karma removal methods. You know, DAC will have to play a really integral part in doing that. There is no other way for us to reach net zero by 2050 unless DAC is actually doing this. And so it's very much the case that, you know, the entire DAC industry is going, it's a very, it's a very much kind of collaborative space where like, if we're all fighting over the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere, we've kind of done our job and we can go home, right? Like there's enough CO2 to go around in a way, right? So it's, it's this kind of weird space where, we're all working towards this common goal. But I do worry these kinds of issues around, you know, phrases and terminology are something that we can do better on sort of like messaging and communicating to people. But, you know, we, we're in this because we recognize that it's really important to do and we don't have any other choice in a way. 
Awesome. Could you just also just explain the technical differences between point source capture and director capture? I think that will be helpful for our listeners. Yeah, so when we refer to point sources, it's always thinking about sort of large, which usually come from power or from industrial processes. And, you know, there's a lot of those. When you look at the map of the world, these vary in terms of the size, in terms of volumes of flue gases, and also the concentration of flue gas. So that means that the cost of capturing from those different sources is going to vary. But in terms of when you compare the costs compared to, you know, direct air capture, it's because of that CO2 concentration difference, you'll see a difference in price. So point sources typically are, you know, a bit cheaper, you know, maybe 80 maybe $150 per ton to capture the CO2 versus, you know, direct air capture currently is, you know, on the higher end at about, you know, 800 to a thousand maybe dollars per ton. But, you know, when you look at sort of cost projections on how that can come down, I've seen costs as low as, you know, 300, maybe 500, depending which type of DAC technology you're looking at. So there's potential for cost reduction, but that's where direct air capture is a whole different egg because you're looking at, one with point sources, you're trying to maximize your capture rate because you want to minimize the residual emissions that get emitted to CO2 to the atmosphere so that you don't rely on CO2 removals. So often we're trying to get at least 95% capture or above. That is now seen as the standard gold standard approach. Whereas with direct air capture, you're dealing with something that's you know basically available infinitely. You don't need to rely on high capture rates. So you've got a bit of flexibility on the capture rate side. You can do something in the order of like you know 60%, 50% capture to try to balance out that cost of the technology because you don't need to capture all that CO2. And then so just using a lower capture rate is just a bit more economically viable. And so that's the key difference really between the point source and direct air capture. I think as well, it's just like with that point source versus direct air capture is that they kind of feed into two very different industrial kind of settings in a way. And so traditionally point source is like a very capex and infrastructure heavy focused technology that is very situation specific and where it's deployed. And I wouldn't say point source is like necessary as a field is like developed to the point where it's a one-stop shop solution for a variety of different industrial sectors. You know, there are point source capture but there are point source emissions where you have like low percentage of CO2, but it's still sort of like one to 5% that really aren't that well catered for and are still being emitted to the atmosphere. And so there are a variety of point source implementations around the world, but the economics of them are still being figured out. And I would say it's still something that's being established in many ways in the way that direct air capture actually is as well. You know, the direct air capture, because you're not required to actually, I mean, goes to my point about it being basically infinite it's the atmosphere you can deploy it almost anywhere and then it's just a question of what are the process inputs in terms of energy or resources that you need to go into a specific kind of technology that will dictate where you implement it and so you know you can look at a variety of different direct air catch technologies but either they're kind of heat based you need waste heat integration these kinds of things and at least our view is that you know if it's more focused on say purely being electricity then with the growth of renewables then you have the potential to deploy almost anywhere actually in a, a really agile way so there are those kind of like implementation differences in, in the technologies as well and then how they will be monetized as well is like very different so in terms of point source you're going to find that point source capture will likely feed into kind of avoidance emissions or you'll find recycling of the CO2 into products, which probably from a life cycle analysis perspective isn't the strongest 
but certainly is, you know, at this moment in time, a high volume of CO2 that can be captured. So, you know, there are economic reasons for doing that. Air capture, at least as we foresee it from a kind of mission zero perspective, from like a more larger kind of system perspective, is that, you know, we foresee two kind of monetization pathways that make sense or you know, economic implementation is the one you're going to enable this. You're going to enable this market for really high, high credibility carbon removals, where you're able to say almost molecule for molecule exactly how much CO2 has been removed from the atmosphere. And that's obviously a question of, you will sequestration pathway whether you do your geological injection or maybe you store it in building materials something like this or you can actually utilize the co2 and convert it into products where your emissions might be circularized like synthetic aviation fuels for example so at least from our perspective as well there's a i think there's like a differentiation in the kind of market implementation of these technologies as well which is quite important to consider I, I would just add a little bit to that also for listeners who might not be as technically familiar with the two types of technologies in that when you think of point source capture, the general process technology and the general inputs and outputs are very similar across the different flavors and different because of those technologies that generally you have one capture solvent and you have one type of process equipment that does point source capturing. But when you talk about direct air capture, there are actually a wide range of flavors, various different processes, different chemicals and different phenomena that are leveraged through each technology developer's approach. For mission zero, it's one way. For another competitor, it's a different way. For third and fourth and fifth, it's all slightly different. And so that can also become slightly confusing for those looking into the space when you're trying to compare the two, two types of technologies because Point source capture is a technology, whereas direct air capture is more of a suite of different potential technologies that we're hoping as many of them as possible become viable. What different technologies and different methodologies underpin direct air capture, and how do they differ in terms of energy usage and cost in general? What different technologies and different methodologies underpin direct air capture and how do each technology or methodology differ in terms of cost, in terms of energy usage, and what are potentially some of the limitations of each methodology? So, I mean, you know, we're kind of knees deep and, and basically talking about my competitors here, right? So obviously only have publicly available information and, and you know, I think a lot of the information that Myers just said in terms of cost is like roughly, roughly correct. And, you know, we have a view of what's going to happen over the next couple of years. So I can sort of expand on that a little bit better. So, I mean, you know, direct air capture, if we like zoom out completely and look at it as a technology, it, basically there's only two parts of it. Essentially, you capture CO2 in a medium. And then the second step, you have to regenerate the CO2 from that medium. And there are a variety of ways of doing that. Traditional technologies are kind of you can think of the way that they're like capturing, regenerating the CO2 the same way like a battery might store energy and then discharge the energy. So it's kind of like a batch modality, essentially, like you load a material up with CO2 and then you have to expend energy essentially to release that CO2 back. And if you basically zoom out and look at the two parts of the process, what you find is that there's a huge disparity amount of energy and therefore costs associated with those two parts of the process. So when you're capturing CO2, this is typically quite a thermodynamically favorable process that you find because you know you have materials which are predisposed to capturing CO2 from the atmosphere. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a very good direct air capture technology, right? The penalty you pay, and that's often one of the reasons why you have such high cost and energy consumption is in the second step when you have to get the CO2 back because you're basically fighting a material to get the CO2 back that has quite happily taken the CO2. You kind of have to really pull it away. 
And so sometimes the energy disparity between these can be like an order of magnitude. So whilst you might look at, say, capture technologies, whether it's, say, like, you know, there are climeworks, carbon engineering, a variety of different other technologies, really capturing CO2 from the atmosphere probably costs in terms of electricity anyway. We're electricity only technology, so I think in terms of electricity. So feel free to convert this to gigajoules if, you, if you'd like, right? But you're probably going to find that to capture a ton of CO2, it's going to cost you between sort of 75 to maybe 200, 250 kilowatt hours per ton of CO2. Whereas if you look on the regeneration side, typical approaches, you know, you're probably looking at 1,500 upwards. So there is this kind of order of magnitude disparity in, you know, the amount of energy you require to get that CO2 back. And also that process of getting the CO2 back often embeds a lot of process complexity. You often are, at least if you're doing this kind of batch process, you're swinging between extremes and things like temperature, environment, humidity, vacuum. These are all quite expensive things to do and they slow the whole process down as well. So I think in terms of cost, you know, if you look at different technologies, I can actually provide you like a quite high fidelity, like plan of probably what's going to happen in the next couple of years. And so, you know, Climax at the moment is aligned with what Mai was saying earlier, is probably coming around sort of 800 to 1,000 euros a ton, for example. So this is the rateable value. You can actually buy carbon removal off of them on their website. And it's important to say, you know, that includes like the injection fee with carb fix to actually sequester it. This includes everything around the MRV. Like it's a whole system package you're paying for there so probably that thousand euros per ton within that is like a lower capture cost which i'm not exactly sure what it is what you're going to have coming online in 2024 and 2025 is a much larger system so climeworks has about 4,000 tons of capability at this moment in time in 2024 they'll have another 36,000 tons so as a total capability about 40,000 tons per year in 2024 but that is going to be dwarfed by carbon engineering coming in and delivering a half a megaton plant in 2024, 2025. And they have sold removals as part of that project to Airbus for about $250 a ton. So already you're seeing that like, as the technology gets bigger and as it starts to deploy, our assumptions about how much it's going to cost are already being proven wrong. You know, I think there was this view that like, maybe we'll get to like, $200 a ton by 2030, something like this. But there's already one company that thinks in 24, should they execute what they, they claim they're able to do, you'll be at $250 a ton already. I think in the, you know, we're talking about implementing, you know, so be a little bit fishy here, but, you know, we're implementing a pilot project this year in July onwards, and we've sold carbon removal to strike for that project of $320 a ton. And I'm pretty confident we'll come in at that price slash under. So that's even at the pilot stage, right? So this isn't necessarily like full commercial. And there will be others who are deploying um, over the next couple of years at a variety of scales who are going to come way under that kind of presumed cost, I think, of like $750 or $1,000 a ton. It is going to be lower. It's going to be in the $200, $300 per ton range. And so... You know, as we extrapolate out to 2030, technologies get the chance to deploy, come down the cost and experience curve. Do you think you'll find that actually there's a real possibility that at least one DAC technology provider might be at $100 per ton by 2030? But there's a lot to do to get to that point. Yeah, I think I might kind of also comment on, you know, the, the differences between the, I guess I can probably comment because I'm coming at it from an independent perspective on the different yeah. approaches. And I think the key thing is often they use different types of energy. So like carbon engineering requires, you know, very high temperature heat because it uses a, a process called calcination. And so you need 
very high temperature heat in the order of, you know, 900, 1000 degrees Celsius. So that is not something you can get as waste energy. Whereas some companies like Climeworks, you're looking at something that requires heat in the order of, you know, 100, 120 degrees Celsius. So that is something you can use like waste heat to kind of use for the regeneration process. There's new technologies that use only electricity, which like electrochemical mineralization type of processes, which are called, you know, where they take seawater, which is kind of an indirect way of capturing CO2. CO2 goes into seawater. You then extract the carbon out of the seawater with this process, and then you get this solid product. And the advantage of these potential systems is that you don't have to deal with gaseous CO2, which requires a way of transporting and injecting into geological storage sites, which then becomes restricted by availability of CO2 storage, whereas dealing with a solid product is a bit more easier to manage. So there's kind of like co-benefits and advantages and disadvantages with each. And it comes down to where you are in the world and you'll select the right technology for you. We did, you know, an analysis which looked at, you know, the impact of climate, for instance, and humidity and temperature in particular on performance of direct air capture. Because often when you look at these experimental studies, they always just assume air at a set condition of temperature and um, humidity. But around the world that varies significantly and that's going to have an impact on your DAC performance. So cost is going to vary depending where you are and the air, the conditions of the air in terms of humidity and temperature because some technologies actually absorb water more than it does CO2 because of that humidity. And so those are the types of interactions that you have to consider when you're dealing and setting up DAC projects. Yeah, certainly. I, I think on the cost question, something that's going to be really interesting to monitor going forward is how do both ourselves, Mission Zero, and all the other direct air capture technology providers deliver on those costs that they estimate? Because so just now the discussion that we had was around energy costs for these technologies and where they source energy from, what kind of energy they require. And like Mai's mentioned, about 900 degrees Celsius for some of the really high energy demand processes out there. And for to use that energy in those direct air capture processes, a huge amount of the cost is also on the capital equipment and infrastructure to make those reactions run in the right way. And for quite a few technology approaches out there, the equipment that they're going to need, the special kinds of reactors or vessels or don't really exist as commercially mature production line systems out there. And so the, their like techno-economic paper assessment and studies might show that an approach might hit certain cost metrics, but the, there's the whole real challenge of translating those estimates into real world practice as well in those various situations at large scale, capturing at capacities that matter, like the carbon engineering project that is trying to take off in the Permian Basin that needs to use an electric calciner, for example, because they can't maybe get a thermal system in place that is still energy efficient. And many other technology approaches out there are also still trying to figure out the hardware that they can develop and cultivate. We're, and this really also presents a really good opportunity for companies like our, ourselves, of course, we'll say that Mission Zero Technologies, who are looking to use existing supply chains and production lines to get to scale as quickly as possible without facing high costs and constraints, especially in the post-pandemic world as well. Shil, you just mentioned that vessels need to be available for your company to scale. I also know that there's this storage bottleneck right now in the DAC value chain. I'm curious to hear your perspectives of where more innovation needs to occur along the DAC value chain to make sure that DAC is really truly scalable and that we reach this gigaton scale removal of carbon dioxide. 
I think that so we recognize the challenge around sort of CO2 storage and often there's things we use this language around, you know, called hubs or clusters, which is this idea where, you know, there'll be sort of a lot of existing projects that have to deal with CO2 and then you could potentially share infrastructure for transporting and storing CO2. And so in the US, they've set aside a lot of money towards basically developing these things they call direct air capture hubs because they know dealing with large volumes in a, the scheme of things, even though it's going to be high capex in, at the beginning, potentially overall is going to be more cost effective that way. And so they're looking at sort of the 1 million ton scale per annum of you know, direct air capture systems in one location so that then that way you can utilize this transport and storage infrastructure in a more cost-effective way. And it happens to be that sometimes those places tend to be near industrial <laughs> locations as well. So then there's a way to kind of leverage that infrastructure to kind of also help deal with the decarbonization challenge. And so with certain technologies that deal with gaseous CO2, there's those types of approaches that you can use. There's also distributed locations. And so sometimes there's like sort of niche locations where you can inject CO2 that might, you know, mineralize the CO2, the certain sites that there will just be, you know, advantages because of the geological formations around that area. But, you know, it's not globally locate available. So that's, that's more or less the assessment side of things that you've got to kind of look, map out where the perfect locations would be and then that's where you might cite certain things but then I mentioned like other technologies that might enable you to be a bit more distributed if you know you're dealing with solid carbonate type of materials that are you know easier to kind of move around and manage but you know th there's ways and that's the thing with direct air capture technologies where they're now kind of thinking that they can shift business models between you know making sustainable fuels and then also for doing CO2 removals and so some technology providers have already on direct air capture have already mentioned that you know because we know the whole decarbonization challenge particularly hard to abate sectors like aviation the only real way to decarbonize those is either offsetting or changing to your fuel source which might be sustainable fuels and to be classified as sustainable fuels it has to come from a sustainable source so it could be biomass but that's in limited supply and so using CO2 from direct air capture is the other alternative and you convert that CO2 into your sustainable fuel and the idea is it's essentially a drop-in fuel and the reason that that's beneficial is because the aviation sector uses very high capital infrastructure that can't just be turned off and discarded tomorrow. So you need some alternative that can utilize the existing drop-in fuel type of characteristics that you can essentially put into that infrastructure of, you know, aircraft that is burning, you know, type similar to conventional fuels, but now made through CO2 that's derived from direct air capture. And so those types of business sort of models could be the way, you know, direct air ca capture can kind of deal once you kind of get that. But, you know, the people who make direct air capture facilities say they can shift that. So one day it might be more, you know, profitable to make the sustainable fuels, but if they're near a location where they can store it, they can shift over and tap into the voluntary carbon removal market and sell credits. And so a lot of the people buying the technologies are asking for that flexibility to be able to shift profiles and depending on what's more profitable that week they can go to same wheels or go to co2 removals i agree with all of that i think to add sort of like from our experience on the kind of geological injection side is that it's resource wise like you know you could view the whole of the us right as like the amount of onshore oil and gas available to be repurposed as storage mechanisms or you know the pore space there's, there's this increasing view that like the poor space beneath you, if you own land, is going to be more valuable than the land itself, right? 
going forwards because there's so much CO2 injection storage capability. And the US has obviously recognized this and has, you know, implemented ERA. So, you know, they're doing direct pay for direct air capture. It's like a 45Q tax incentive, $180 for every time that's been injected and stored geologically. Now that's direct pay for five years. And, the, you know, the rest of 15 years afterwards is a tax incentive, right? So it's it's incredibly, it's incredibly interesting how people are starting to, or governments are starting to figure out the how they can start to monetize and, and create value in these different areas. I think one interesting thing in that area, and we can take the US as a specific specific instance of this, is that whilst the resource is there, the actual capability to get the injection online necessarily isn't. And so within the US, you have to inject your CO2 within what is classed as a class six injection well. Um, and there are actually only a few of those that have gone through the permitting and planning process as of, say, 2022. You know, we're now in the beginning of 2023. We know that more are being planned and the permitting process is beginning, but this is actually like a very long process to get those up and running. So, you know, it will always be whilst you have the geological resource, maybe for the injection, the market conditions and governmental, say, policy conditions on the ground will dictate how easy it is to do. There are... You know, you could look at the entirety of Iceland basically as a massive carbon sink. It's made, basically made up entirely of basalt. And, you know, you have Carbvix up there who are injecting CO2. They're the injection partners for Climeworks. And I think there's estimations basically that, you know, Iceland, for example, could soak up something like 660 gigatons of CO2. Like Iceland, basically, if you turn the ground underneath it into like a carbonated material, could probably deal with climate change itself. But you can't get the conduit of all that CO2 underground in the first place. And also, it's a question of whether these industries can stay in the way they need to and whether they're supported to actually do that in the future. We're working with a company called 4401, who are based in Oman and in a very similar in a very similar rationale to Iceland. Oman, and particularly a specific region of the Middle East, has a very specific kind of rock called peridotite, which is also very, very good at reacting and mineralizing CO2. And you can use that geological formation as a massive carbon sink. But it's again, it's a question of whether the resource is there and we know that it's capable of taking it up. It's a question of whether we can get it in fast enough and whether governments and policies and the economics stack up in a way to make that something that's viable. So I believe that it will be, but it's going to take time and a lot of effort from a variety of stakeholders to get there. I think on the supply chain side, which is kind of my day-to-day -day obsession and bread and butter thing, there's also a big opportunity rather than challenge, I'll say, a big opportunity for providers of the various types of equipment for, say, the more promising deck technologies to really expand as industry globally. Because something that's important to bear in mind in the conversation is also that while right now today in policy incentives for carbon removal and direct air capture are the strongest in, in, in North America and the US and in European Union and the UK, which is now outside the European Union. The, the problem that we're tackling is a global problem and it is going to take global effort to deploy DAC at the scale that we need, at gigaton scale. We're like, as Nick mentioned, even though there is capacity in just one country in Iceland to store all that CO2, we can't physically locate 66 gigatons of direct air capture on Iceland. It has to be elsewhere and located elsewhere as well. And so making sure that these policy support schemes are encouraged, are taken positively by the public and also taken positively by other parts of the world and demonstrated by other governments and leadership positions trying to echo and improve on those in their parts of the world is going to be really critical for us to also get to the deployment skill that we need to enable the carbon removal we're talking about. Definitely. 
fighting climate change is a global effort, and this also applies to carbon dioxide removal. As you mentioned, this requires multiple stakeholders across the world to be aligned. On that note, I want to talk about Mai's paper on a geospatial analysis for direct air capture. So essentially, where are the best areas for DAC hubs? Mai, could you just describe a little bit of your research and what some of the learnings were? Yeah, I mean, I guess in that paper, we really look at it from, you know, that technical perspective of thinking about, you know, the temperature, humidity, and then, you know, also potentially CO2 storage locations. But there's a lot of other factors that really go into whether a project happens or not. And often we've had this discussion for CCS for, you know, mitigation methods of why aren't we doing it? There's a lot of factors behind that. And that that comes down to, you know, business models or policy mechanisms that usually help support these types of projects. And more and more what I'm seeing is, you know, really that's the key bottleneck. It's not so much the technical barriers of, you know, finding storage so much or, you know, the energy requirements that are needed it's it is really to do with those business models that you might need to help support and there's a growing demand for CO2 removals because of you know doing market research you can see companies are making these commitments for net zero that means they are then now going to be one day held accountable for making such commitments they need to start thinking about you know decarbonizing, but then there's also that need to offset. And so that's increased the demand for credits. What the problem is, the market has a lot of avoidance credits, which are credits that are generated from doing things like, you know, doing like integrating renewables into the grid. And that then works out that you've reduced emissions because you haven't used fossil fuels and this creates this avoidance credit and they get sold alongside CO2 removal credits as if they're the same thing, but they are not. (laughs) They're two distinctively different things. And that's where when you've got a marketplace that then sets the rules that says, let's only deal with CO2 removals. And now there's one called Pure Earth, which has set the rules that only CO2 removal technologies can be sold in this marketplace. That gives this clear signal of we're not going to mix in those other types of credits from avoidance projects. And that's where that can help provide the market signal that's required to help encourage the use of CO2 removals as opposed to doing other offs- generating offsets through other means. And I'm, I'm seeing more and more these other things like you know advanced market commitments. That's another mechanism that can help projects get created and and move along because you know projects need financing and that's the key thing and how do they get that financing they need to kind of show that there's demand for that technology and so there's things like pre-corks that are offered through pure earth type of marketplaces which are a way where projects have a plan they can kind of describe what the project is the projected amount of co2 removals they'll generate and people companies and people could potentially go on there and buy those credits that means that they can then start demonstrating like these types of agreements to potential investors to say look there's a potential business here and that then attracts financing and the often thing is getting access to cheap capital by showing that the technology works there's interest in the technology the demand that's the thing that will help bring technologies on board and bring projects on board and and get going. And the more and more projects there are, the more and more certainty there is around the technology, then it becomes easier to kind of start, you know, deploying them. But, you know, that's definitely right now, 
looking at how much CO2 removals is needed, you know, there has to be a way to kind of scale this up. And I can start to see, we are starting to see like different models that are enabling that. From the sort of government policy side, they also do have a role as well, not just from the private sector, but governments are, you know, for instance, in the UK, they've set aside money for this GGR demonstration fund, which essentially is funding pilot projects for various different CO2 removal technologies, a lot of them being direct air capture technologies, which is then another way to show here's some more certainty that the technology works. That's then showing also government interests and that there's going to be potential interactions between a compliance-based system as well as a voluntary carbon removal market. And so those are the types of signals we need to see from both the private sector and the public sector to help kind of bring projects on board in particularly scaling up technologies. I think my assessment there of the kind of like, in a way, what you've described as like the the, the hurdles that this industry is going to have to go through in many ways, and like the mechanisms that are kind of being made up, like almost on the fly in many ways, on the kind of like timelines that we're talking about to try and get this market to be scaled. Like Mission Zero is a great example of a company that's got like a pre-purchase agreement with the company. So our first buyer of carbon removal was the, the finance company Stripe, you know, the, pre, the, the payments company. And they bought car removal from us for our pilot project before we've actually got the pilot up and running. So that's happening, you know, this year. In the same way you talk about government support, you know, Mission Zero is, is backed by the UK government for a pilot, this pilot project specifically, right? So, you know, there's always, just to sort of expand on what Myers just said, is that, you know, imagine if you went to a project financer, right? You said, I have this great technology, remove CO2 from the atmosphere, and I can sell carbon removal credits from it, and there's a growing market for it, et cetera, et cetera. And they go, great. How many years of operation does the technology have, and can you get insurance? And you go... A couple of years and i've spoken to maybe two insurers who will touch this with a barge ball because it's not been proven right and so whatever support mechanisms or kind of like aid can be provided to the industry in smart ways that you know don't make it kind of like where you don't pick losers where you allow winners to win essentially are smart things to do and so you see that with era for example with the inflation reduction act and the tax credits that are enabled but it's very much the case that, you know, there's a lot to do to get our scaling journey going. And DAC companies are starting to find ways of differentiating into different niches and referencing earlier synthetic fuels and all these kinds of things. So it's certainly not something that is kind of, there was no like playbook, if you see what I mean. And it's taken like four leaders in certain areas to say, we will take the risk in this area because we recognize it's something that needs to be done. Like Stripe and Shopify, for example, were the first real like, large buyers of any kind of volume of carbon removal and you know one is a a company that lets you set up a marketplace to sell whatever you want for your own business and the other is a, a payments company you know a, a silicon valley startup itself so the demand and the kind of like creation of this industry has been supported in a variety of like very interesting ways from a variety of different areas that you might not consider and whether that's you know you're still going to have that coming from government but I think, every, you know, climate change touches everyone in a way like it's the support and, and the way to move forward is going to have to come from everyone as well. Right. So. And what sets, you know, Microsoft and Shopify and Stripe apart from other customers is the, the demand for high integrity credits. Yeah. So by setting that as their key requirement, they got set submitted a lot of proposals from many different potential CO2 removal suppliers and through that stringent process of applying a very strict criteria, 
very little of those few of those projects could actually go through and be bought by them and then that then increased this sort of need of like you know the signal to say high high integrity is going to be real important so something that has high permanence something that's additional you know something that has transparent carbon accounting and so these are the rules and the guidelines that are kind of now set by the corporate buyers themselves that then know you know for suppliers like okay for the technology to be potentially successful in this carbon removal market, we need to meet these criteria. Yeah. I mean, to just follow on again on that, as you referenced earlier, Maya, this, this focus on like offsets and avoidance versus like actual removals, right? And there's this, you know, Guardian article that came out a couple of weeks ago where it showed that actually a lot of these offsets, if they're reforestation offsets, are projects that one, even if they were planted, didn't actually remove the amount of CO2 that was quoted. And actually a lot of them are burned down in California, for example, where they were planted. And so you don't have this kind of like credibility or view of like the amount of CO2 that's been removed or the confidence. And I think there's an element of like the standards that arise in the direct air capture and general like carbon dioxide removal industries that goes forward. We always have to be setting really stringent standards for ourselves, even though it might be really difficult because that's the only way we're going to have any confidence that this is something that can be monetized and can, you know, actually people have confidence buying it. So, you know, like you say, like there has to be this high durability. There has to be this permanence that, you know, has to be hundreds, if not thousands of years. It has to be something that people will buy and they go, great, I feel really good about this. And I'm not worried that I'm not worried that it's going to be remitted later. And I think the industry specifically must has to focus, whether it's DAC or BEX or it's biochar or anything, has to specifically focus on not repeating the mistakes that happen in the offset markets because otherwise in a way we're just spinning our wheels and we won't achieve what we need to do to really combat climate change what are the biggest hurdles you nick and shell need to overcome in building and scaling your company in the direct air capture sphere or really any company that is wanting to do carbon dioxide removal where do we start <laughs> we, we we actually spent where, this morning where do we start? exploring some of these yeah, I'll, I'll take a stab and then over to you, Nick, for the, the real big ones. But direct air capture is a technology as well as Mission Zero as an organization kind of has to go hand in hand because there's often been the, the common pathway for scaling technologies that you take something from, say, academic research or university lab, and then you make that work really well. But then you don't have or you didn't pay as much attention to developing the company and the commercial side to get that out there, making the impact and creating the value that it really could do for any industry that you're targeting. And so something that we're working on, at least on the technology side, is to make sure that even in our first pilot, for example, that's coming online later this year, separated by the government GGR program, that we're not just going to prove the capture part and the CO2 recovery part work by themselves. We're going to do, treat it as though this is a commercial plant in terms of the depth that we have to go to, the rigor that we have to go through, all of the paperwork and administrative clearances that we need to get, say, with the environment agency, with site permissions and planning, all of those things, integrating with the customer directly, for example, the, pli the pilot is being hosted at their site. And to cover all of those things and tackle all of those things effectively, as an organization, we also need to make sure that we're not just having scientists and engineers who are developing the technology internally in-house. We also have people who understand those things have those experiences and backgrounds and can make sure they guide us on the right path to navigate those things. Because there's so many pitfalls that can come organizationally trying to get a technology from an idea to a lab scale to an actual pilot demonstration. And 
having people who have gone through those journeys before within the organization is a key asset that cannot be understated. And we, we have started working on that and there's a long way to go on that for sure. I'll hand over to Nick as well. I think there's two things that I'd really highlight that, you know, Mission Zero is grappling with at this moment in time, but probably the industry is grappling with like in a larger sense is, is one, let's take renewables in this example, right? You know, everyone talks about e implementation and it's now scaling massively, right? But that, you know, if we take like a solar photovoltaics from being in a lab and first discovering the photoelectric effect all the way to them now being on rooftops and scaling massively and being a global industry that, you know, is starting to provide more and more raw electricity as time goes by, that's, that's more than a century. That's a really long time, right? Technologies take a while to scale. And with direct air capture, we're talking about, you know, mission zero is, is less than three years old, right? I think we're going to be three in about half, in about maybe like four months time, something like that. You know, in, in two years time, we're going to be closer to 2050 than we were to 2000, right? You know, like it's, it's not like something that's really off in the future. Like it's, it's around, it's around the corner it's on our doorstep. Like it's going to come out as fast. And we have to scale an industry that the idea was only talked about as, as you were referring, referencing May, like 13 years ago. And the, the, the industry has to scale to have megatons of capability. I think we have to have something like 80 million tons of capability online by 2030 for us to even have a stab at getting towards net zero, never mind everything else that has to happen in CDR. And so going on that scaling journey is something that no one's ever done at that rate. Like it's, it's just unheard of. And now I think it's doable, but it's certainly, at least for mission zero day to day, I would describe like my life and our general lives as like everything's on fire and the things we focus on are just like, what's the biggest fire? That fire over there is relatively small, probably burn me to death in about six months time. I can leave it, but that one over there needs to be sorted today. And so there are all these things that we're navigating in parallel, like the permitting, the planning, the technology development. You know, I think as well, if I were to go to the focus on talent, you know, this is a nascent industry and we're asking people to come and give up like, you know, maybe established long-term jobs in other industries, say oil and gas, energy, permitting and planning, you know, government or project management and engineering areas and things like that to come and get into this industry. And it's not hard to convince people to do it because you go, you know, do you have kids or do you care about the environment or et cetera, et cetera. And they go, yeah, like I feel really strongly about it. And they watch the news every day and they see how things are getting worse and worse. And so we don't struggle to get people to want to come and work in this industry. But aligning with what Shul said is that there are specific skill sets in terms of engineering and deployment. These are large engineering projects, their infrastructure. We need those skill sets to kind of turn around and go, I'm going to throw my weight into the ring here and, and contribute to it. And those skill sets are there, you know. So say like half the workforce at Mission Zero are kind of reformed oil and gases, right? You know, who have gone, actually what I want to do is focus on really contributing to solving the problem. But we need more and more people to go, I'm going to go and work in climate tech, whether it's direct air capture, it's biochar, or it's, you know, ocean alkalinity enhancements, as you referenced earlier in my, there are a variety of things where we, we just need people to pile into this, whether you work in finance or project management, or you work in comms and media and marketing, like we need everyone to pile into this industry as quickly as possible, because the rate that we're going to have to move at, we're going to find constantly we're short staffed. So I would say to you, if you're listening to this, and you're either worried about climate change, and you work in a field that isn't related to it, or you're deciding what to do with your life, I would say there's no better opportunity than now to like move into this field because it is going to be one of the biggest industries on the planet over the next 30, 40 years. And like 
massive careers and opportunities will be made in this space. And I need you to come and work with us, whether it's me or actually for my competitors, for example, I need people to come and work in this area, right? So talent and just acknowledging like the scaling journey is like never been done before, but we've never, we've never created and then solved climate change before either, right? So it's not that it can't be done. It's a unique challenge which we face ourselves right now. Just on that talent point as well, to add to what Nick's saying, which, by the way, sounds quite familiar to as part of my interview snippet on the Imperial alumni profile that is out there about all the different sectors and ways that people who are graduating or coming into the workforce can leverage what their specialties and their experiences into how that intersects with climate. Because we definitely want as many people as possible and fresh graduates, highly skilled people to kind of work for our mission zero. But equally, we need to need them to be working across the fence with our collaborators, with our funders, with our legislators, all of those different facets as well. So whether you are going to be a scientist, an engineer, a policymaker, an economist, a lawyer, things like that, even, even a doctor at some point, convincing people that director capture is not going to impact health, for example, or if you're a lawyer, like making sure the legislation is favorable for technologies like this that need to get us to a certain capture threshold at a certain period of time. There is no better time and like no stronger calling out there, arguably. And so just make sure your talent's gonna be put to good use is what we can employ you. And if it's gonna be a mission zero, that's perfect. But equally, there's many people that we need to be sitting on the other side of the fence as well. I've been really struck by, by the kind of growth of like the interest in this area as well from a, an academic setting. So I'd be really keen to like hear from your perspective on that as well, right? Because we need like more research in this area as well. Like the technology has been worked on now. Like we're like, I would love it to be 10 times better. It's just that it is what it is today and it has to be deployed. But many of the innovations will be implemented like 2040, 2050 are going to come from research labs and they're going to come from academic backgrounds. So be really keen to understand from your perspective as well how you see the growth in that. Yeah, I, I think like we do a lot of sort of like, you know, scenario type of analysis work, but then we also kind of work quite closely with policymakers and the commercial side to kind of see that interface. And when we kind of look at sort of projections around, for instance, you know, social economic benefit as well, like you can definitely see doing sustainable transitions can be beneficial to the economy. It can create jobs. It can actually boost the GVA of a given country as well. So you do have to kind of consider that, you know, if we go down business as usual, things are not going to go well for us. And aside from just looking at CO2 removals, it's also linked to multiple other sectors. So because if you're thinking about sustainable fuels, you'll need a hydrogen industry, you'll need renewable energy. So there's people who are you know, upscaling renewables to feed into direct air capture, to feed into green hydrogen. There's a lot of other applications outside of just CO2 removals that also have to grow at the same rate. We look at the recent IPCC report, and they even provided even short, shorter timeframe than the 2050 target of net zero. If you think about if we want to meet the 1.5 degree target, we actually have to start reducing emissions by 2030 meaning that's an even shorter time frame. 2030 is only seven years away and we are nowhere near even reducing emissions, let alone going to reach net zero because right now we're kind of going along the trying to rebuild the economy. And so this whole idea of, you know, building back better, building back in a green way. So this is the chance for us to kind of reshape how we do energy, reshape how we do just the whole entire, you know, economy in a way that's a bit 
much more sustainable that starts kind of moving towards that dial towards where we need to be by net zero 2050. You know, it, it just needs to happen. And I guess some of the work we did on sort of if we wait for a better technology, it always ends up missing the target or ending up even more expensive. So actually the things that we have today that we can deploy, we should just do it. And it ends up being much more cost-effective and we can actually get closer to the target. So the whole idea that people say, oh, we should just wait for a more efficient technology or something that's more cost-effective or more lower in cost, that's not the case from the work that we've done on sort of looking at the projections wise. It's better to always just go with what we have today and just do it really. <laughs> I think it's a really important like market data point as well as that, you know, as we engage like with the market and try to commercialize this forwards, like, there is this kind of like reticence or focus on like, well, we'll just wait till it's cheaper or wait till it's better. But as you just said, like that just means that we don't achieve what we need to achieve. Like yeah, I completely echo that. We need to deploy what we have now. We need to get something on the ground as quickly as possible and then implement them as well. So we don't really have a choice. Nick, you mentioned that there needs to be some sort of technological progress so that you can essentially really scale your company to the next level. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on what areas you want more academic research and academic collaboration in, and what needs to essentially happen so that you're able to scale your company. These startup companies actually started from academic research, you know, so like carbon engineering, you know, Harvard University came up with this concept and idea and then it became the startup and now we've got a direct air capture company. Similarly with Climeworks, they work really closely with ETH in Switzerland. That's a close collaboration as well. So, you know, the academics are feeding in knowledge and it's all happening real time. Companies need information, they need progress there's universities that are helping them do that. And so I think they also, you know, it is nice to see the commercial side also seeking alternative researchers and academics who work in the space to get alternative views as well. So it is, I think, all happening right now, that interaction, which is, you know, really, I think, encouraging to see. Mission Zero is a bit of a weird one in that we didn't actually spin out of a university, but we're like university trained, like PhD chemists and engineers ourselves. So I'm from UCL, Shills from Imperial, Gal did his, our CTO did his PhD at University of Bristol. And I think there's an element here of, you know, one of the reasons we didn't spin out from a university ourselves was that we recognized that there's important processes and experiments and, and data that comes from, from academic research labs. But I think for us, the stronger focus on like having a very strong commercial bent and ensuring that like whatever innovation has been realized has a really strong commercial focus, that will ensure that whatever innovations are happening in universities like Imperial, you know, the UK has like some of the best universities globally on the planet. Like the research output of the UK is one of its main strengths. And to ensure that these innovations are really being propelled into the marketplace as much as possible, I think requires that, you know, that there is that close collaboration between academics and everything on the business side and the commercial and, and university thinking very strategically about how they spin out their technology as well. And that's a function as well of like working with policymakers and all this kind of stuff. It's it's a more ecosystem comment more than anything else. You know, we have two universities in the UK we're collaborating with at the moment, you know, we feel very strongly about, you know, establishing relationships with like leading universities across the UK and internationally, because we recognize that we need them. 
you know, despite the fact that we didn't spin out of one. And you see the success of Climeworks and Carbon Engineering as well, being spin-outs of, you know, MIT, or is it Harvard, I think, and ETH, right? So good ideas come from places where good good ideas are supported and they're propelled and they're given space to develop. And when things go wrong, you don't go, all right, we're stopping now. It's actually about enabling that creative space. So regardless of whether that happens like in industry or whether it happens in universities, I think the technologies that will enable us to propel our efforts to fight climate change will be realized because we create the space from a socioeconomic, a policy perspective, and within our academic research labs to experiment, create, and collaborate effectively. I just want to add. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, yeah, I was say, like, it's really nice to see, like, people I've worked with, like, past PhD students and researchers, like, they now just go directly into the industry, you know, so they'll finish their PhDs, they've got the knowledge in their brains, and they're ready to mm. go, and they are going into these startup companies, and they are helping, so there's a kind of steady stream of, you know, workforce being created that's now going into the startup companies that hopefully means that, you know, we can start progressing the field, because we mentioned the skill shortage, but, you know, hopefully we continue that interest in the space so that the people do want to kind of continue with their careers in it afterwards. Exactly. I, you know, I completely echo that and say a large proportion of our workforce are like straight out of PhDs, have very technical training in scientific and engineering backgrounds and have like either a couple of years of industrial experience or have just come straight from education. So ensuring that you have that talent base continually coming through and also articulating to them that this is a viable pathway for them as well is really important to do. And a really good way of doing that is communicating it effectively at the stage when they're doing their studies. So yeah. What sort of advice would you give to these PhD students, entrepreneurs, scientists who are starting to think about carbon dioxide removal and are seeing loads of capital being put into this industry? I think like, well, for me, as a person who, you know, also educates students alongside doing research and other things, I, I try to get my students like really enthused about it and passionate. And I, I do see, you know, they are very much like wanting to learn and absorb information. So when I tell them like there's this new industry around CO2 removals and it's things that are actually happening today, like they get really excited about it. And then, you know, they all have, it's quite a multidisciplinary course that I also teach where there's people from, you know, law backgrounds, from, you know, financial backgrounds, people from engineering, and they're all equally as enthused as each other and they can definitely find a space for them. So, you know, just recently a student who had a law background didn't really realize like there's a whole new area for her now and she said oh now I can look into the legal aspects of CO2 removal and it's still such a nascent area and this needs further development like yes it does need further development and I'm glad that you're interested in a career in this so yeah let's do it and so you know it's just really encouraging to see that next generation get as excited and wanting to help contribute towards that future goal. I think we would say that, you know, if you're a scientist or an engineer or you have a technical background, something like law or, you know, politics or anything is that you have a specific capability, which you have the opportunity to leverage. And the sooner you start leveraging it in the highest potential space you can, essentially, where you have the maximal impact is like a really good thing to do. But I would say that it doesn't matter if you're really capable, if you cannot communicate effectively and really persuading people, bringing people along with you, you know, to scale this industry in the way that it needs to, it's going to take a lot of persuasion, a lot of communication, a lot of bringing people around the table, listening perspectives, communicating your perspectives. And I think that's what makes, there's a certain superpower about really technically competent people who are also incredibly good communicators. And so I would say, 
let's not write off the the need essentially to ensure that there's a strong focus on communication scientists engineers who focus on also communicating their work effectively and why it matters to somebody else are those who have the opportunity i think more than others to really deliver impact so i'd say really really focus on on communication and i would just say you know like you're going to be in the top, you know, top couple of percent of people in the world. You have this unique privilege and opportunity, and you spend all these years training. Go and do something fantastic and amazing with it, regardless of whether you're going to climate change or something else. Go and deliver impact in the world or make people's lives better. I think there's there's nothing better you can do than that right now. Because the world needs it. Let's be honest. Amazing. One last question I want to ask: What can everyday citizens do to support? the development of the nascent carbon dioxide removal market. So I was on this I was on this panel a while ago last year, right? And and it was a load of people from the carbon removal industry and the audience were all people from the carbon removal industry and there was one person that sat on the panel and he said, "Guys, this is all this is all really nice, like it's all really interesting, but everyone out there doesn't know what you're doing and they view it with a little bit of suspicion." And if you don't do a very good job, essentially, of communicating them what you're doing, you run the risk of like be, being associated with things that you don't want to do. And so I'd say there's an element of us needing to communicate outside externally what we're doing like better so we bring people along with us. But I would say to people who want to know more, stay curious, read as much as you can and go and talk to people about it. I think you'll find the industry is so small and young to a certain degree that probably you can cold email people on LinkedIn if you wanted to, and they'll probably give you half an hour. Like I regularly do this for people and, you know, I will take conversations with almost anyone I can because I think there's an imperative on our side to communicate to people at all different scale lengths, at different parts of community and society, why what we're doing is important, why we think it's a really good idea, not to try and convince them that we're right and they're wrong, but just to make them aware of what we're doing. And so I think there's an element of like the resources that are out there. I would just encourage people to be curious and and not prejudge things and really come to understand what the field's about, whether that's hydrogen or whether it's CO2 removal, or whether it's, you know, renewables, these are all going to be things that we need. And you can part, play your part, whether it's like at a community scale, you know, working with like groups who are advocating things, local government efforts, you know, in the renewables area, for example, you know, community groups are going to become an increasingly big thing. And that's a massive impact potential just at the the individual level right so even in co2 removal if you want to buy a small amount of removal that is only going to help this industry right and you know it's expensive now it will get cheaper in the future but even just that kind of like i will buy a couple of key kilos removal from pine works i will buy a couple of pre-corks for example from pure earth something like this all that granular support early on really helps grow the market in a way that you know provides a pathway for this technology and, and these companies and this industry to, to scale. So I'd say stay curious, support wherever you can, and there are mechanisms for you to do that actually via a variety of means. Yeah, I completely agree with Nick, Nicholas's points there. I think that like increased awareness is ultimately what creates change. And so, yeah. you know, when that awareness came, when we saw, you know, Greta Thunberg do her protests, yeah. that was when like that moment of change, when, you know, the world recognized climate change was a big issue that we really needed to start immediately acting on. And I think since then, things have definitely improved. <laughs> so, you know, but prior to that, I think that was really quite a battle of trying to communicate the importance of mm. addressing climate change. But after that, it's it's been it felt like, you know, the ball just got rolling, the men, momentum was there. And now people are much more aware, people 
consumers are demanding for more sustainable products and they want to see things around companies making commitments to net zero carbon neutrality like they use different terms but ultimately it's this whole idea of becoming more sustainable and so by the consumers demanding this this means that corporates and companies are now shifting how they do things in order to address these requirements these targets and i think that that's been a real game changer and so we are seeing much more shift and, and more and more companies are signing up to net zero commitments. And so this means that we'll just inherently just have greener products. So when you go to Microsoft, you will know that they're trying to reach net zero. Supporting Microsoft means that you inherit in an indirect way, support a CDR in some ways, because they've been you know, helping support the industry. And so recognizing the companies that are being more sustainable the ones that are being you know more active and trying to reach net zero supporting them rewarding them means that they you are signaling to the market that this is the type of people the corporates that you want to see out there so being more aware about that and consumers by doing those types of purchases enables the market signals to kind of know that this is the shift you want to see happen it's always that argument isn't it about I'm just like one person, what 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 contribution can I have? But the moment everyone goes, I am one person and there are another 7 billion of me. And if I choose to make this choice and even just 40% of everyone else does the same thing in some way, shape or form, the change is huge, it's catalytic. So I would not write off the power of the individual in this, in this moment, right? You have the chance to say to corporates and the products that you buy what you want and they will adapt to that because they want your business. So send the right signals. And that concludes our episode on the carbon dioxide removal market and director capture. Thank you so much, Shil, Nick, and Mai, for the interesting insights that we talked about today. And for our listeners, if you have any suggestions on ways to improve this episode or questions about the discussed topics, drop me a note on the email linked in the description below. Until next time.